Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. With the holidays right around the corner, now is the time to start thinking of the perfect gifts to buy your loved ones. Don't miss the Just Ingredients Early Black Friday sale on November 21st and 22nd, where the entire website will be 20% off. A sale this big only comes twice a year. Stock up on your favorite face serum or deodorant for yourself. Gift a collection set of beauty products to your mom. Or surprise your friend with our brand new chocolate peppermint protein powder or vanilla peppermint protein powder. Set your calendars for November 21st at 9 a.m. Mountain Time to be first to restock on all of your favorite products, including protein powder, new tooth powder, and limited edition candy cane scented Christmas products. Nothing says happy holidays like a gift from Just Ingredients. This is the only big sale for the rest of the year, so don't miss out. Remember, November 21st and 22nd, the entire website will be 20% off. Shop the sale at www.justingredients.us. Noelle Martin and Angela Dodge are registered dietitians from Ontario, Canada, with almost 40 years of combined experience, who co-founded the virtual nutrition consulting company, Nourished Beginnings, four years ago. They saw a need in their community and in the online space for accurate, reliable, and most of all, realistic nutrition information for moms and the children they feed. Noelle wears many hats in her life. She is a registered dietitian with a master's degree, mom of three young boys, an instructor at Brescia University College's School of Foods and Nutrition and cookbook author, Superfoods for Super Kids. She knows how truly hard it can be as a mom to take care of your own health and well-being when faced with life's challenges. She is passionate about supporting moms and taking the stress and guesswork out of meal planning, meal prep, and feeding kids. That's why she shares the same science-based and real-life tested strategies that help nourish herself and her family well in the chaos of life. Angela is also a mom of three children and has been a registered dietitian for over 20 years, with her focus being primarily pediatrics and childhood nutrition. She worked for 15 years as a clinical dietitian in acute care pediatric hematology and oncology, where she was continually reminded of the effect food and nourishment have on the health and healing of a child. Since co-founding Nourish Beginnings, Her focus and purpose has been on educating that we feed children 100% has an effect, either positive or negative, on how they learn, grow, feel, and behave. Her goal is to help moms improve their child's attention, focus, mood, growth, and ADHD symptoms through the effective and realistic use of food and supplements. Welcome everyone to the show. Today, I am so excited to have these guests. I have been wanting professionals to talk about ADHD, and I found these two on Instagram, and they have years and years of experience, and so, and they're professionals in this area. They have so much knowledge, so I'm really excited to have Ange and Noelle here on the show with us today. Thank you so much, ladies, for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. (laughs) Will you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and or both of yourselves and your backgrounds? Sure. So I'll go first, I guess. Uh, My name is Noelle Martin. I'm a registered dietitian and mom of three active boys. I have 10-year-old twins and an eight-year-old. 
And I have a passion for working with families in general, working with moms, working with children and helping them understand how they can feed their bodies and their brains well, raising adventurous eaters, uh, meeting children where they're at when it comes to how they're feeling about food, really exploring that and then giving them a toolbox for success for moms to be able to raise adventurous eaters who have a healthy relationship with food. And that looks, uh, there's some similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. And so it's always wonderful to, uh, to see the differences in children and really just honor them for that. Uh, I've had a private practice for many years and Angela and I uh, joined together in private practice a few years ago now. We've been friends for over 20 years and we share this passion for working with, with kiddos and seeing what a difference food nutrition can make uh, in their in their lives and in their families' lives. Well, I love what you do. So thank you for doing what you do. And then Ange, if you'll tell them a little bit about you. Yes, Noelle's taking me over to this side of practice. I was always um, in clinical nutrition um, in a pediatric oncology hematology role. But now, you know, I have three kids. We were just talking about all different ages, 17, 14, and 11. So being able to work from home and see people virtually has been really amazing in that respect. So I am more of the ADHD side of things. Noelle is the picky or selective eaters. She's the guru. I bow my head to her. <laughs> she knows how to get kids to eat. So we kind of, we feed off of each other in that way that in our practice where we sort of balance each other out and um, we all both have our passions as she talked about, but yeah, we, we, we complement each other really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you guys about ADHD and picky eating. So hopefully we'll get to both topics. But first of all, with ADHD, I have a lot of followers who ask me quite often questions about ADHD. And so that's why I wanted to bring you guys on the experts on the show. So let's start from the very beginning and the basics. Let's just explain what ADHD actually is. Sure. It stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. It's actually the most common neurodevelopment disorder within childhood. Of course, adults have it as well. And the reality is that we don't always know if it's true ADHD or if it's a nutrition deficiency or if it's both combined. And so it's really important for parents to truly understand the signs and symptoms of both and make sure that they are working with professionals that truly understand kind of the, the whole picture. Okay. So are there signs and symptoms of ADHD that are similar for everybody or do they differ for people? Basically, there are certain signs and symptoms that you're going to commonly see, but you may see some more in certain children and others more in other children. We know it varies even uh, by gender, um, right or wrong to say, but it's the truth. Um, and so we do see with ADHD, there's there's more fidgeting and squirming in the seat. It's hard, hard for them to sit still. Um, they'd rather be moving around, uh, yet at other times they're just kind of gazing off into the distance. Um, so you can see kind of both ends of the spectrum um, that way. There's a lot of emotional dysregulation. The child doesn't really understand what's going on inside their brain. It can be really hard for them to process it. So sometimes they will have outbursts of anger or of crying. Sometimes it will feel like they talk a lot and sometimes they'll just be like really quiet because they can't figure out how to process 
what's going on. So it's really, uh, it's really important to understand the child. Um, sometimes it's hard for them to get really get down to business, like take something in that you're talking about and do a task. On another side of things, sometimes there's this major hyperfixation where they focus in and they just don't want to be interrupted. And it's, and it's a real problem if they're interrupted, because then you can have that emotional outburst. So it seems to me that it would be really hard to actually diagnose ADHD because as you're talking to me, I'm like, well, I had little boys who were always fidgety, like they never wanted to sit still. And then I'm thinking some people do just gaze off into, you know, if they're bored in a classroom, then they are going to daydream a little bit. Or it's typical for toddlers to have outbursts of anger or frustration, you know, so is there a certain age that it's easier to diagnose this? I mean, can toddlers have ADHD or do we wait till they're older? How does that work? It's the million dollar question kind of. Noelle and I always go back and forth and say, do I think I have ADHD? Do you have ADHD? <laughs> right? Like it comes right? in all ages. <laughs> we normally, you know, and it's parents that they usually suspect something with their child, like something is going on before they even start school, they think, oh, are they more active than that other kid over there? Are they more energetic? They can't sit still. What is it? But normally when a child starts school is when that diagnosis will start, you know, around the six to 12 years of age, because that's when a teacher or outside influences start to see that child. So they might notice like, oh, that, that little one is not really focused. They're not paying attention. They're up, they're disruptive. They kind of have a feel and start looking at these little ones. And then that's when, you know, a teacher, you get those phone calls back and forth and a teacher will sort of put into place some of that assessment. And then the child can be assessed by like a developmental pediatrician or a psychologist or psychiatrist in going forward for them. But it is, it's really difficult. Okay. So it's not really something that's diagnosed as toddlers. It's more school age. Yeah, I normally see it around like the six, seven, eight year of age. I have seen really young ones, the four or five year olds, but it's very uncommon that you would see it that little. Okay, so what about adults, though? Can we do some adults get diagnosed with ADHD? I don't see adults in my practice, but, you know, in conversing and with colleagues, more and more adults are because I think the system or the symptoms in adulthood are a little bit different. Maybe it's procrastination, maybe it's really hyperfixation, maybe you're going long periods of time without eating, like there's lots of different things in adulthood that might trigger a diagnosis. But in kids, if it's persisting for a really long time, in terms of they're really hyperactive, they're really impulsive, because some kids can do that, they'll do it for a couple days, and then they're okay. But if it's constant for a long period, that's when it might trigger those those assessments and diagnosis at that time. But Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to stick with kids today for the show. Yes, please. Because um, <laughs> I know you guys see kids, not adults. But going back to children <laughs> and me saying like, well, my boys couldn't ever sit still as, you know, young little boys, things like that. How does a parent know if it's behavioral issues or actual ADHD? Or is there a way to tell? Because there, there's no definitive thing. So it's just working with professionals to know better. And the process, I don't know about in the States, but in Canada, it's, it's quite long. Um, in terms of getting an assessment and then treatment, it can be really 
an extended period of time just because of resources and things. But it definitely you advocate for your kid and, you know, talking with your teacher, the child's teacher, making sure there's um, things in class that can help them. But it is really difficult. Honestly, we get a lot of people that come to us that kind of want to be proactive about things they think is maybe my child has ADHD, but I want to try something first to see if you know, I can change their behaviors, maybe we'll work on blood sugar, all of those things, which we can talk about. But it's a really tricky thing, for sure. It is tricky. It's important to note as well, how, how easy it is for children to be labeled, like Mm -hmm. labeled as, you know, a, a child who's, you know, the bad kid in the classroom or misbehaves or the problem child or that type of thing. When in reality, the child just they don't even completely understand what's going on. They're not necessarily equipped. And like Anne said, even if you don't have like a full diagnosis, there are many things that we can do outside of nutrition. But since we're talking nutrition within the nutrition realm to support the child well in terms of helping them get the best nutrition possible to help their brain function as best possible. And when those steps are taken, even without a true diagnosis, even without other aspects of that can help with ADHD, you can see a significant difference. Okay. So I actually want to ask you about root causes and the nutrition deficiencies, things like that. But I do have one little comment. I interviewed someone on anxiety and I kept saying like, well, how do we know if it's true anxiety? And finally he said, it depends if if they have it constantly, like every day for a long period of time, then that's when you know it's anxiety. Because I was saying, well, everybody's anxious at some points in their life. And being anxious can be a good thing sometimes to protect you from harmful situations. So when do we know it's something that needs to be medicated or worked with a doctor on? And so it almost sounds the same thing with ADHD. We're all going to have behavioral outbursts. We're all going to be bored at times. We're all going to be fidgety. But it's when it's constantly like day after day after day over a long period of time that then it needs to be addressed. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. Yes. And and I think it it also, when we work with families, it's more the impact on the family as well. Like moms are, they get to the point, you know, you can be, you can parent a child where they're having outbursts and they don't sit still and all of those things. But this is really impacting everyday life for these families. They can't focus. They can't function. Mom is feeling like she can't hold it together anymore. It's just, it's, they feel like a failure. They can't parent these kids. And, and that's when it's like, there's something else. Like this is just not regular toddler or childhood behavior. And that's when I would think you would go and get some extra help. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, yeah. so let's go now to the root causes of ADHD. Are there root causes of ADHD? What are they? And I'm assuming nutritional deficiencies are some of them. So we know that there's a genetic component, um, but there's no real root kind of cause and effect that we can speak to. However, there have been correlations noted. So we can't say that as soon as a child is premature, they're going to have ADHD, but we do know that being premature increases the risk. Mm -hmm. We also know that premature babies are often born iron deficient. So 
which is it? So there's a lot of kind of uncertainties there, but we can say, okay, there's a correlation. Um, repeated head injuries. Uh, sometimes uh, there's a lot of research in the area of kind of brain anatomy and, and how that is going to play out. There's environmental factors. It's really a budding area of research. And I, I firmly don't think that we will ever be able to say like this causes it. I just think we're going to be able to understand the correlations better and be able to maybe have some better screening, uh, better support uh, in place kind of over time. Um, there's nothing about food that truly causes ADHD. Like an iron deficiency doesn't cause it. An iron deficiency can lead to certain signs and symptoms of an iron deficiency. But we also know that many children with ADHD are iron deficient. We know that if a child has enough iron, giving them more isn't going to make a difference. We can only... Uh, if we top up nutrients, whether it be omega-3 or iron or zinc or magnesium, whatever it is, we can only help to the point of bringing someone out of a deficiency. Adding more isn't necessarily going to change the behavior, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. Um, we also know that for kids with ADHD, there can be a sensitivity to simple sugars. So we may want to address, uh, you know, when you do have added sugar, here are some other things that you could have in the diet at the same time to try to help that kind of blood sugar spike, which is it makes an impact for these kiddos and also food dyes. So we can't say that food dyes cause behavior change, but what we can say is that for a child with ADHD, we sometimes see that behavior is affected with food dyes. And so in fairness to the child, if that's the case, let's help them understand it and almost treat it like an allergy sometimes, right? Because you don't need the hard and fast statement of food dye leads to this, but if we do have a child where we're saying you have a negative impact on your behavior and your overall well-being when you eat these things, it doesn't serve your body and brain well, let's chat about that. And so it's working with the child and with the parents. And as Anne said, the whole family, like it affects the whole family when this child is in a place where they are struggling with behavior versus when they're in a place where they're feeling like, hey, we can do this. Okay, so that's good to know. So can we say that these food dyes, food intolerances, sugars, things like that, that they don't cause ADHD, but that they can contribute to some of their symptoms. Definitely. And yeah. it's a, you know, anything you read or see, there's half the people will say, no, for sure. Food dyes does not do anything. Other half say, yes, there is. And there's sort of research on both sides, but it comes to finding out what works for your child. Like some kids can have a big bag of M&Ms and a cream soda and go about their day and be fine. And another child has a red sucker and is like the Tasmanian devil. And so you just have to figure out what works for your own specific child. And Noelle and I both kind of have had this conversation before. My youngest, I didn't, I couldn't see out of the bubble, even being a pediatric dietitian, I was like, why is this kid acting like somebody I don't want to be around at this time. So he was about five and it kind of clicked in after a while that anytime he had something that was really high in um, like a really like a blue or, or red color, it was like night and day for him in terms of his behavior. So we did a little challenge. I showed my husband, he wasn't a believer until we did. Like, we gave him, a, I think a, it wasn't a cream soda, but something like that. And it was completely night and day. So it's just working with families. And most of those foods anyhow don't have a lot of nutritional value in them anyway that have these really high concentrated colors. So it's not great to put them in the diet anyhow, but 
Yeah. So every kid is different. You can do a little challenge if you want at home. And I'm in the same kind of boat. Like one of them is very affected by food dyes and the other isn't. It's like this little mini twin study in our home. And I think for both Angela and I, one of the things we're passionate about is, you know, raising children with a healthy relationship with food. And it's something that we put into our practice as well. And so the language to use around this and not having children feel like they're a bad person if they do have red food dye or that the food is bad for them, but more helping them truly come to terms with um, what does this do to your body and brain, right? And that's an important piece to work with parents on as well. I love that because I hate labeling them good or bad, even though I show like good, better and best options on my page. But I always try to teach my kids like these foods nourish our body and help our body do the best that it can. And these foods maybe don't nourish our body. They can be a fun treat and it's okay to have a fun treat, you know, on a special occasion, whatever. But let's look at the foods that nourish our body. So I love that language. So it seems to me that ADHD in a way is sort of like how I teach about depression because that's something that I teach a lot about. And what I teach is there are lots of different things that can contribute to depression, but it's different for every person. And that's why it's so hard to figure it out. It's not a one fits all solution. So it sounds the same way. Some artificial dyes may affect others and some it may not affect at all. Okay. So now going back to the iron deficiency one, if they get their levels back up to normal, Will that help? Because you were saying don't give a surplus of it. That doesn't benefit them. But getting them to normal ranges, does that help? Yes. Depending on sort of age and, and the symptom that you're trying to sort of fix. I do. I've seen hundreds, if not thousands of kids in my practice, you know, in hematology um, and in private practice through this whole time with varying levels of iron deficiency and ages. And when they're babies or toddlers and that iron deficiency is there, they might regress in sort of their um, motor skills or their speech and language. And those and cognition and that, unfortunately, can't always come back. Like it doesn't, it's not once you start replacing and that, that comes back. In the older kids I see that are more suffering from, say, symptoms like headaches or Pallor, like their skin is really pale. You know, I can spot them usually as when I'm out, I've seen so many. I'm like, oh, look at that one. Oh, they're iron deficient. Oh, they have iron deficiency. Um, maybe they have dark circles under their eyes or they're really lethargic or tired more often, or they're sort of eating, wanting foods that aren't food. So they want to eat paper or they're eating dirt or licking the walls or whatever it might be. When we start to replace at that level, those tend to diminish. So it just depends sort of where you catch them in terms of when this iron deficiency progresses. So is that how you find or figure out if you're iron deficient is like dark circles and lethargic wanting to eat weird things? Yeah, it can be. When the first thing when we we have a child come to us with any sort of behavior issue or any of, you know, we get referrals for iron kids that are iron deficient. Those are the things you look for first. Maybe they're not growing. We've had a lot of these um, premature kids who aren't put on enough iron. And as they get older, they're not growing. They're not meeting their growth potential because iron really affects growth. Maybe they, um, like I said, they're really pale, all of those things. So you would look at that, but then get blood work. So once you know the blood work, that's the really the only way to know for sure what their level is at. 
and then to be able to treat that level. It's iron is not something we just sort of throw at kids where you're like, oh, here's some more iron. Here's a little bit more. It can be just as dangerous, too much or as too little. So you really need to know the numbers starting um, in the beginning. If it was a perfect world, every child would get their blood work done once a year at their family doctor or their pediatrician just to monitor those levels to be able to see. Because sometimes they get so low, but you know how kids are. They're very resilient in terms of being able to cope with a low iron. So iron helps oxygen move around in our body. So for as we get older, it gets a little harder when we have low iron, we're not as active, we're more tired, that bothers us. But kids, they can, they can have a low iron, go forever, and you wouldn't know. <laughs> and then you test it, and you're like, Oh, my gosh, how have you been living this whole time with this number? So yeah, the, it's best to just get an iron um, level done for sure. And the baseline is helpful as well. Right. Because if you have a child who was, you know, even in the in, you know, mid range or mid to the higher range and now they're at the low end of the range, well, they're working in a deficit and maybe they're heading down. Whereas if you get them tested for the first time in their low normal, the doctor says, Oh, they're in the normal range, they're fine. Mm. So, like Anne said, like in the perfect world, we would be doing this routinely as part of assessing our children and how they're doing. If if a child doesn't have enough calcium. And then they have more calcium down the road. The body does a great job of what we call catch-up growth. Those bones will increase in their length and density a little bit faster and a little bit more with the calcium. That's not the case with iron. So like Ange said, some of those deficits, like we can't come back from them. So we need to catch it as soon as possible. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. So I'm curious if someone is iron deficient, do you suggest certain foods that they eat a lot of, or do you suggest supplements? What's your take on that? This is like the my most favorite thing to talk about. Okay, so if they've gotten blood work done and they have a confirmed iron deficiency or an anemia, so that's a little bit different. Anemia, like an iron deficiency anemia is when things get sort of really bad. And there's a trend that we go through. But if they've had blood work and we see that we look at something called their ferritin. So that's a level of all the stored iron that's in their body at the moment. And we want to see that that's in a good range. If it's in the normal range, get someone to look at it because it's probably not normal. There's such a huge range. But if you if you know and you have a confirmed diagnosis, food will not rectify that. There's not enough food a child could eat in a day to be able to move the needle on that iron deficiency. So what we normally would do is we get the blood work. We work with their family physician or pediatrician. We treat therapeutically. So you know, we're really giving high doses of iron that are safe in the general, you know, in their population, because iron can be a drug when it gets to a certain level, it's considered a drug. So we need to work with a physician on that. And then using that iron supplement religiously for three to four months every day, making sure they're taking it, and then we reassess. And then we go from there, if they can come down a bit on their levels. But yes, we, we still encourage food, you know, we want to work on that as well, but you, you need to supplement. It's not something that we play around with when someone actually is iron deficient. And why do we have so many kids that are iron deficient? It can start as easy as young as infancy. So maybe mom didn't supplement as well with her diet. So baby's not getting a lot in there, either in vitro or with breast milk. We see a lot of these milk babies, we call them, where 
you know, they've transitioned off of either breast milk or formula. And then in the toddler age, they're drinking either cow's milk or, you know, nut milks of some kind, which have no iron in them. So there I've seen kids eat it drinking 40, 50, 60 ounces of milk every day. So their tummies are so tiny, they're not getting any other iron rich foods. Maybe they're on a vegetarian or vegan diet where, you know, we know that plant based iron is not absorbed as well as heme iron or iron from meat. Maybe they're selective eaters. Um, maybe there's malabsorption, but generally we see it's just a lack of intake. Like it's, it's kids just not being able to keep up. It's like women and adults, like it's hard to actually keep up. They need such a large amount for growth at that time that it's sometimes tricky to actually get enough into them. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. So now I have another question for you. Are there other nutritional deficiencies besides iron that can contribute to these ADHD symptoms? Yeah, there's, there's some when we're doing blood work, I normally see, um, usually kids are low in vitamin D, iron, zinc, blood work doesn't really show well for magnesium, but generally they're lower in magnesium. Um, some of the B vitamins, food, these guys, so they're in a well rounded diet. So they're missing a bunch of things, they might not even be getting enough protein or calories and sort of those macronutrients as well. Omega-3 is one that's really hard oh, yes. for us to test for, <laughs> but it is something that we have some really incredible research to show that the pathway that uh, both EPA and DHA, but especially DHA, a form of omega-3, the pathway that those take in the body is actually a very similar pathway to the way that some medications work, except for without the negative side effects. Mm. And so we see that higher doses of these can sometimes be very beneficial. The, the thing to think about though, is as is anything with nutrition, too much of a good thing isn't necessarily a good thing. And so we have to think about some upper limits because it can affect clotting factor of blood and that type of thing. So again, we want to work with appropriate numbers, but we do typically see benefit of not just omega-3, but particularly the forms EPA and DHA, which are available more plentiful in animal-based sources, um, algae or seaweed, you know, has it as well. But when we think of like hemp parts and chia seeds and pumpkin seeds and avocado, those have omega-3, but it's a different type. And the body isn't as efficient turning it into DHA. So that preformed DHA uh, is an important one. And then also probiotics. Again, we can't test for it, but we do know that gut health and brain health are unbelievably connected through the entire um, span of life. And so if a child is born vaginally, they actually have the same microbiome as mom, but if they're born via C-section, they actually have microbiome similar to like the skin. And so early on, we might see like more reflux in these babies. And we want to add a probiotic in early on to help with that. But later on, we can see it potentially interacting in terms of aspects of the brain. And so those are two other things in addition to what Anne said that we can't really test for, but we definitely consider. It's so interesting because I deal a lot with depression and anxiety talking to people about them and omega-3s and gut health are really important for both of those. And so let's go back to the food of the omega-3. So what foods do you suggest for those? 
So salmon and mackerel and other fatty fish, of course, are great sources. Um, purchasing omega-3 eggs, sometimes we wonder with these, these products, is it gimmicky? Is it true? Basically, we cannot take flaxseed, like whole flaxseed as humans, we have to have it ground in order to access the omega-3 in there. And then we're not very efficient at turning it into DHA. Chickens are different. So they put flaxseed into their feed, they can break it down, they can convert it over. And so omega-3 eggs do have um, some EBA and DHA in them. Uh, breast milk, if mom uh, is, is breastfeeding, that's a great way for babies to get EPA and DHA and then seaweed or algae. Typically though, we don't see that kiddos get the amount that would be ideal through their diet, just in terms of volume that they eat of food. And so typically a supplement is going to be warranted. And I often tell parents too, because sometimes parents say, oh, you know, supplements are expensive. And I'll say, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Right. Perhaps you're eating fish twice a week and they're taking the supplements twice a week. And so then you have four days a week that they're getting some omega-3 in. Um, so, and, and unless it's in a situation where it's like therapeutic iron and it needs to be seen as like a prescription, but it's the same with, with a lot of supplements. If it's too much of a financial burden to do it daily, then how much can you, right? Let's right. do what we can in any area of life because perfection is not the goal. It's progress towards something better than today. Right. And so that's a conversation that uh, I'm sure Ange does too, that I often have with parents of trying to find the balance of all of these things. It is a balance. And I know when I went on my own health journey, I did not have the money to buy all of those supplements. And so my doctor actually told me, okay, don't buy the probiotics then, just buy some kimchi. And every morning, yep. just have a big spoonful and it's going to be disgusting and gross, but just count it as your probiotics. And it was great. It worked great. So there are other options out there. But let's talk about gut health just for a minute, because our gut is what breaks down all the foods to give us the vitamins, minerals, nutrients. So if we have gut issues, we may not be absorbing those nutrients that our brain needs, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And we see... You know, we see a lot of kids that come to us and parents are giving all of this good nutrition and they're giving, you know, all these supplements already and nothing seems to be working in terms of just overall health. And you can kind of go through, we don't know if it's actually a malabsorption thing that's happening, like they're taking this all in, but are they actually digesting it? So we have to really look at that as well. So yeah, it's the whole gut brain connection is, is phenomenal to me this whole you know if if kids aren't I don't know if you've ever seen this but when kids aren't stooling every day like if they're not having healthy poops every day they are not going to behave the best way that they can they kind of perseverate on oh my gosh I have to poop I have to poop <laughs> all of this and then if they're not going it, it totally changes how they behave and react and if when they do actually go it's a completely different kid that you see so it's all it's all connected from top to bottom for sure. Yeah. And what I find so unfortunate is that sugar uh, can really affect the gut and there's just hidden sugar in so many things that we feed the kids and the kids are just getting too much sugar on a daily basis. And so that's an unfortunate piece, I think. It's really hard. It's, it's one of the things it's hidden everywhere. We've done these little studies, not studies, but experiments in our home and with clients where we'll get them just to even read throughout the day. Let's see how many grams of sugar. We don't ever want to count calories. We don't count mm -hmm. protein. Like we, that's not our goal. 
it's to identify what foods have a little bit more than the other one. And it's the funniest thing when they come back, it's like a challenge that they do in terms of, I found all the sugar. But in a juice box, 32 grams of sugar it can have. And we know for long-term health in kids, no matter what the diagnosis they have, if we're having more than 25 grams of sugar, added sugar in the day, that doesn't include sort of fruits and vegetables and other things that you're eating. They have more diabetes when they're older, cholesterol issues, obesity, all of those things from just sugar every day. So it's it's a tricky one to find. It's It's everywhere. It is. Okay, so let's help these parents out that are listening. If they find out that their child has been diagnosed with ADHD or they think their child has ADHD and they're going through the process of figuring it out, where do you suggest that they start? For me, because I'm biased this way, I always want blood work. That's the first thing that I would do. And just so you know where you're starting from. We know that we can try to fix sort of these iron deficiencies or vitamin D deficiencies, all of those things. And then working on so much, they're bombarded by social media, internet, take everything out. Take As soon as your child has ADHD or you think they are, no gluten, no dairy, no soy, no processed food, no sugar. And then parents shut down, kids shut down. <laughs> it's not realistic to do. So we sort of focus, we turn the hat and, and we think of adding foods in and adding behaviors and mindsets in instead of taking everything away. Like kids, it's, oh my gosh, you're taking that away from me too and that away from me. And why can't I have any of the things that my friends have, even though you know that maybe it's a little bit, it's better for them. But more adding things in, more nutrient-dense foods where you can, like maybe if they love macaroni and cheese, you might not say, tomorrow we're taking all the macaroni and cheese out of the house because we know that that's not a great food to have. Maybe you start adding hemp seeds to the macaroni and cheese, like the mix, the cheese mix. Maybe you mix that first and then add it over the cheese. So you're adding these kind of extra protein and fats and good healthy fibers and magnesium and iron and things into that food. So you're getting a little bit more bang for your buck. But that's how I think about things is adding more in instead of taking everything away for kids. I like that philosophy. Absolutely. Same, same thing. And when Angela and I are working together with children, I often am the one that kind of steps in on the side of they have either already been a pickier selective eater, and now we're trying to add some foods in that they're really not interested in, or they were feeling fairly adventurous around food, but now they've started medication and they're just not hungry because we know that a lot of times the medication um, used as part of ADHD management um, really does reduce appetite. And so when I'm working with families, same as Ange, you know, we're adding, we're adding foods in, um, but really incorporating the child as part of things. So we know that food exposure away from the table is incredibly important for children to feel more comfortable with food. We know that autonomy is huge. So uh, to Andrew's example of like, you know, if we're keeping mac and cheese in there, but maybe the child, you know, has shown that there is a bit of an intolerance in terms of something to do with dairy or gluten or something like that. If we're swapping something, we do a fun taste test, or if we're going to be adding in some hemp parts or some edamame or something like that, so involving the, the kids and saying, okay, 
we're going to put two different ones in front of us and let's each take a bite and see what we think. Or does it smell different? Does it look different? Does it feel different? Allowing them for to explore food with their five senses, not just can you take a bite? You need to eat this um, because if they feel part of it, they feel safe. Also allowing children to understand that there's no pressure for them to eat any particular amount. There's no pressure for them to like something or not like something. It's okay if they're learning to like something, just involving them as much as possible. So we as parents, whether we're working with a child with ADHD or not, we as parents, we do have that responsibility to think about what we're going to feed our children, you know, making that available to them when it's going to be served and where we're going to be. But the child really does need the autonomy in deciding if they're going to eat and how much in order for them to become a more adventurous eater. And sometimes that just takes time. So uh, I love to work with families on, on strategies around that, on strategies of how we can make food fun. Kids were born to play um, on strategies about how we can make lunchtime realistic at school. So uh, something as simple as switching to a bento box, because for a child with ADHD, number one, if they if they're on medication now, they're not that hungry necessarily at lunchtime. But even prior to diagnosis, it may feel very overwhelming for them to see four or five containers and think, oh, I got to open these and I have to close them and I don't know which one I want. And it may take them 10 minutes just to go to the bathroom and come back because they were distracted by something on the wall on the way back to their desk. And right. So there's a lot. So if we just have that bento box and we open it up and everything's right there, everything is right there. Uh, cutting a sandwich or a wrap up into smaller pieces, you know, a wrap as a pinwheel versus a wrap just in the lunchbox as it is could be night and day difference whether the child eats it. Asking the child, would you prefer for me to peel back your orange and pull it apart? Or do you like it as it is? Then when they open their lunchbox, they're like, I had a say in that. I had a say in how the orange was put in there. Or maybe they helped to cut the cucumber in the morning. You put everything else in, but they're cutting the cucumber and putting it in. And they were part of that. And they understand the, the food is available to them. They can choose to eat it or not, but it's available to them. If they don't eat all day, they often come home famished. Number one, they're very, very hungry. And number two, they have, it's taken everything in them to keep themselves together behavior-wise at school. So they come home really hungry because the medication starts to wear off and they come home feeling exhausted for all the effort they put in to have their behavior in check today. And so after school can be really difficult. So after school and into dinner time is a big time that we work with parents in terms of, of supporting them through that so that it can be a positive family experience. I love all those tips that you gave. I have found just with my own six kids that if I have them help in the kitchen cooking dinner, they are so much more likely to try it, especially if it's something new. And 100%. I love that when they're in there helping and I have them start even at like three or four years old, like the little four-year-olds just can do an electric chopper really easy where they just hit the top and it chops up the veggies, you know, but it's where my kids have learned about different foods and why we put different foods in and why different foods nourish our um, body. And so I think participating is a huge key. And then also I think consistency is a huge key, at least yeah. with raising my kids. If they knew, yeah, in our house, we always have a fruit and veggie every breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They just expected it. It wasn't like this new trendy diet we were trying each week, you know, it was just consistent throughout the years. Yes, absolutely. And 
to your point around them helping in the kitchen, they learn the fact that when you cut broccoli in the beginning, it's quite crispy. And then when you steam it or you roast it, now it's quite soft and they can experience it in both ways. And it's not right or wrong if you prefer one over the other, but if they only see it on their plate at the end, they don't truly understand what it once was. I know for my twins and partly it was survival mode for me because I had a little one when they were 27 months, I had another baby, but I would sit them in their high chairs and I'd give them a bowl of spinach, a bowl of water and an empty bowl. And they would wash the spinach, (laughs) put it over at like 18, 19 months old Um, because I was newly pregnant. I was exhausted. And I think, oh, what am I going to do while I make dinner? And that was the start. So like you say, even the little ones and the more that they help, the more that they feel they were part of things, right? Oh, thank you for this salad you helped to make. Thank you for these potatoes. Thank you for, like you said, with the chopper, they can press it down. Thank you for making the onions that were part of this stew today. And they beam, right? They're so excited. They're so excited they were part of it. And then they're excited to try it because they made it. (laughs) Right. Okay, so these parents that now have this new diagnosis with their child of ADHD, they're feeling very overwhelmed They're feeling like they need to switch all of this up in the kitchen. And in reality, I believe it's just one little change at a time and start with things that you know that they like. So for instance, if you know they like an apple or a banana, why not add an apple with that mac and cheese for lunch? Or why not add that banana at breakfast with their cereal? Like it doesn't have to be this kale and sardine diet overnight, it is, let's just add what they like to the foods that we're already cooking, correct? It's absolutely correct. Absolutely. Something on their plate that they are familiar with, that they enjoy, that they're excited about. And, you know, ideally we have something on their plate that maybe they're learning to like, and that they understand they don't have to eat any of it, that the exposure is sometimes just looking at it. And what I want to say to the moms that have picky eaters, I think more of us have picky eaters than we think. Mm -hmm. And I had a picky eater that was so picky for years and years and years. And now finally, as an 18 year old, he will eat whatever. So uh, just hope to those parents out there with young ones that just be consistent with them. And it might take years and years and years, but eventually they'll probably come around. Absolutely. Especially if the pressure is low. If the adventure is high, if the play is high, if the involvement and autonomy is high, but the pressure is low, uh, that can be really helpful. Also, I know dinner time is really busy. So if someone's listening and thinking, well, I don't have time to have them help me make dinner, I can barely get it on the table in time, they could be prepping something for tomorrow night's dinner or for tomorrow's lunch, just having them in the kitchen while you're prepping food, even if they're touching a different food is wonderful. Um, And like you said too, small steps, right? We've talked about a lot of things and and you don't have to do everything at once all the time, but these small steps and being consistent with it is, it does pay off over time. It's not about one meal or one snack. It's about thinking big picture. I love that. We could do a whole episode on picky eating and maybe I'll have you back just for an episode on picky eating. Um, But I have a question about ADHD that I know we have to answer before we wrap up here, because if not, everybody will DM me asking this. So let's quickly talk about medication with ADHD. Is it necessary for everybody? And 
how do we take the guilt and shame away from parents that do put their child on medication? This is another big topic. We could have a whole podcast on this too. So we're taking it from our side. Before we start any medication, we want to try nutrition first. And we're not anti-medication. We're proactive nutrition. That's kind of how we operate. But unfortunately, nutrition is not really part of that conversation. It's just not known. Like I've had, I've talked to some pediatricians where they're like, why, what would we do? Why would we even start nutrition? (laughs) Oh gosh, we need some education here. And others are really like, tell me what I need to do. I want to get involved. I find when I'm seeing a lot of kids, the problem when they're put on medication and we're not saying they shouldn't be, if, if it's disrupting the household, if they've tried other things, behavioral therapies, it's not making a dent. Kids need a little bit extra on their everyday arsenal of toolbox and a medication might help. Then for sure we have to try it. We have to stop demonizing moms. They're at the point where they just can't take it anymore and they need something to try. And sometimes we see moms, they get their child on a medication, they try it. The child is worse. Like it's, it's a terrible situation for that child then they might try a different medication. That one didn't work for them. And then they come off it altogether because they just figure that's not working for my kid. Oh, but then there's others that come and they start on their one medication and it's night and day for that child and, and the household. So they can focus, they can concentrate, they can actually sit in class and take in all the information. The problem that we get and we see is when, you know, I have even five, six, seven, eight-year-olds that come to me on two different ADHD meds because the first one didn't work as well as they wanted. So they add another one and then they're not sleeping. So then they add a sleep medication and then they're not pooping. So they add a bowel medication. And so for us working backwards is really difficult. And for the moms where they think I've gotten so deep into this that I can't figure out how to get out. And we worry because most of these kids, as Noelle was saying, as soon as they start on a medication, they can drop weight in an instant. So their appetite is gone. Their hunger cues are gone. They have no interest or pleasure in food. They don't care. As soon as they get up, they take their medication. They, Within half an hour, their appetite is gone. They go to school. They don't eat all day. They come home starving, angry. They want to eat. So, and this weight just falls off of them. And we get really concerned in childhood because like adulthood, you start a medication, you find out you have ADHD, you start a medication. I'm not as worried at that time in terms of growth and development. These kids are growing. They need all of these calories. They need all of this nutrition They to be able to meet any of their growth potentials. So if I get a kid that's 10 years old, they come in, they're 85 pounds, say, and they lose six pounds. So they're 79 pounds within a month for an adult, six pounds. Okay. That's okay. (laughs) Sometimes people want that, but in a kid, that's about 7% of their body weight that is gone within a month or two. That's a big difference. That's really profound in terms of their growth. So I get really nervous when that happens. And so we try to work on ways to get those calories back up. There's things like bone density. We know that kids that are on these stimulant medications for six to 12 months, that their bone density is lower, which is never talked about. So, you know, I'm not ever saying we shouldn't try it, 
if a child had diabetes, we're going to try medication. Those are the kind of, it's a, it's an actual medical diagnosis and we might have to try meds, but we need to kind of counteract those side effects that come along with it. percent agree with everything Ange said. And we know that often side effects just aren't spoken about because there's so much focus on the fact that this is going to help with the behavior. And like Ange said, a lot of times parents are, are feeling very desperate by this time and it is understandable. However, if there can just be a pause to look at the big picture first and truly understand what this is going to look like. And similar to when you're working in the area of depression, anxiety, and I used to work in the area of eating disorders, we use this term toolbox, right? You build your toolbox and it's the same for families with ADHD. Um, We feel honored to be part of the uh, toolbox building as early on as possible so that the family is really set up for success as opposed to kind of coming in and trying to put out fires of what's been happening as part of going on the medication. So I think it's important for parents to know that there is medication out there that can help, but it's going to have possible side effects, but that there's also other things that they can do. They need to be empowered with these other tools that they can maybe first try. And so I think that's where I come from because antidepressants were life-saving for me at the time, but they didn't heal me. And so my big thing is there's lots of underlying root causes to depression. Let's try to heal the body and nourish the body before we're just thinking that's our only option. And so it almost sounds the same with ADHD, like it may need to be used and that's fine if it does, but let's understand the side effects and let's understand there's other tools out there that could possibly help. Yes, don't want to mask anything. We don't want a family feeling like, well, the behavior is better now, so we'll just carry on. What if there is an iron deficiency? still there. We don't want it to just be a band-aid. We want to make sure that we are helping the child be healthy in all areas. I was just saying, I was just thinking about what you were saying in terms of working with anxiety and depression. Like we know now nutritional psychology or nutritional psychiatry is a booming research area. Like we know trying to use omega fats for depression and anxiety can help. Like I just wish that we It was kind of our first step that we took when we were trying to help these families, but we can only wish. (laughs) I think with people like you trying to educate others out there and help others, I think we're slowly um, becoming more and more aware that nutrition does play a part in all different health aspects. So thank you for what you do. In fact, why don't you tell my listeners where they can find you and more resources from you, things like that. So you can go to our website, nourishbeginnings.ca. We're in Canada. It's not .com, it's .org. <laughs> and also on our Instagram, um, nourished.beginnings.kids is our kids side of our practice. And we also have uh, prenatal and women's health that you can find also on our website as well. And don't you guys have guides and courses that you offer? We do. If you go to our website, they'll be on there as well. There's some supplement guides, picky eating guides. There's some for women. There's a prenatal course. Like there's all, we try to service a different populations. We have some other dietitians that work with us that can help with those areas as well. But yeah, if you come to our website, you'll find everything. Okay. Noelle, don't you have a cookbook as well? I do. I wrote a cookbook to help get kids in the kitchen. It's called Superfoods for Super Kids, and it's truly written to kids. It's 
focused on eight to 12 year olds, but really children that are younger or older can certainly use it. There's a little waving hand to show when they'd want to call an adult to be right beside them. But it's really meant to help children experience uh, different foods. The recipes are not difficult. They have fun names that go along with kind of that superhero theme. Oh, how fun. I need to grab a copy of that. So I'm assuming they can just find this on your website. They can. It can be found on the website. It can also be found through Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, and in most bookstores like Indigo and Barnes & Noble. Oh, thanks for sharing that. They are a huge resource, you guys, and are a wealth of knowledge. So if you are a parent dealing with different health issues with your kids, uh, turn to them. You'll learn a lot from them. I always end my podcast with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you girls say it is? It's a tough one. Many things come to mind. But when I think of the area we've been just speaking about and and motherhood, I think being willing to be flexible is so important in the sense that I think we come into motherhood often thinking like, this is how it's going to be. And I've read all the books and I know what it's going to be. And you have this new little human being in front of you and it's not that way. So while it is so important, obviously, to think about love and and gratitude and optimism and, and many things, I think that uh, the first thing that really came to my mind there was just flexibility and being open to the path that we go on with these tiny humans and the fact that whether we have one, two, six, or 10, uh, they're all a little different. So we have to be flexible even within each one. I love that. No one has used that ingredient yet out of all my guests, but I agree with it because my first child, I thought I knew the path and I was not flexible at all. And we butted heads a lot of times. And now my fifth and sixth child, so much more flexible. And there's a lot more joy in parenting when you're flexible. So (laughs) I love that. What about you, Ange? Well, now I can't compete with that because that was the (laughs) one that's never been used. Oh, there's lots of good ones. (laughs) No, we talked about it last night. We were like, we know she's going to ask this question. So that was what came to our mind. So I would 100% agree with that. Oh, okay. You're going to claim the same one. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I know my listeners have learned a lot. I know I will be using this um, episode as a resource for lots of different questions that come in on my social media platforms about ADHD, picky eating, things like that. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.